Hey there, Dragonfly Nation. This is the Canadian Bushcraft Podcast with your host, Caleb Musgrave. And originally, we were going to make this all one episode, the previous episode, this piece, and a few others. But we realized they all kind of deserve their own episodes. And so you're going to be getting four episodes today here on Boxing Day. Uh, the one that Nikki Satira did that was just previous to this one. This episode here with Emily Carell telling the story of the Newfoundland incident, which was not about the province, but the ship. And then we'll be having Ryan or Rye the Adventure Guy, as you all know, my favorite hostage, talking about the Donner Party in the next episode. In the final episode will be me talking about the Franklin Expedition and the incidents that fell upon them. This four-part series was caused mainly because of our supporters over at Patreon. They have been amazing folks who've been helping contribute financially to the project, this podcast project of ours, as well of giving us ideas and giving us uh, choices uh, helping select the choices for us. Uh, so each month, our patrons get to choose one store, uh, one option out of all the different options for episodes as a bonus episode. But this month, you know, it's the holiday season. We figured let's give you four. And thank you to all of our supporters at Patreon for that. So without further ado, here is Emily Carell telling you all about the Newfoundland. Now that story out of the way, uh, we're going to dive into the... It's the SS Newfoundland uh, or HMS? I don't, it would not be HMS. Um, I don't think it even would have the designation SS. It's always just called the Newfoundland in uh, the books I've read. So we're going to dive into the Newfoundland incident. Mm -hmm. Otherwise known as the Newfoundland ceiling disaster. And before we get into it, I'm going to start with a quote. This is a quote from the last living survivor of the Newfoundland ceiling disaster incident. Um, in uh, 1914, and his name is Cecil Muland, and he says, they didn't die like flies, you know, like I've heard some reporters say over the years. Oh no, it wasn't like that at all. The men who died didn't just drop like flies. There was nothing quick or easy about it. They had frozen feet and fingers too numb and cramped to wipe the cold tears from their eyes. Tears from tough, fearless, grown men, and a good many of them young, too. Most of them just lay down on the ice, frozen solid almost, weak from hunger and too tired to get back up, and they gave up the ghost. Died of despair, and with tears frozen to their cheeks. It was cruel to look on, you know. We figured no one was looking for us. That was the saddest part of all. We figured we were left to die, and it turns out we were right, too. So... We are talking about one of the cold weather survival stories that I have heard mentioned almost nowhere. Um, no podcasts, never seen it listed in many articles. Um, the, there are only two books published on it. And that's the only way I know about it is from a book published in 1971 by Cassie Brown, who's a Newfoundland folklorist, uh, called Death on the Ice that I found in a used bookstore. That's the only reason I have heard of this incident. Which is insane for the amount of like death toll and mm -hmm. really drama that happened. It's, it's a pretty amazing story when you get into it. Um, and the, the only reason, well, you know, there's a few reasons I can think of why we haven't heard of it. It was I think it was pre-Confederation in Newfoundland. 
Um, and just the sheer regular death toll of the fishing and sealing industry in Newfoundland sort of maybe maybe the rest of uh, Canada didn't quite understand it. So paint a picture for me. What, when did this happen and where did this happen and what did that look like? What was the landscape before we get in really into like what actually happened, where and when? So we're looking at St. John's, Newfoundland in 1914. Um, and St. John's, Newfoundland and the surrounding outports of Newfoundland in 1914 are very much a different world even from what we would be thinking of as Ontario in 1914. Sitting in Ontario and Peterborough in 1914 um, is fairly close to today in terms of access to electricity and things like that. Uh, Pre-World War I Newfoundland, you're looking at wood stoves, no running water, very still very close to a lot of the settler experiences except for in the larger cities. Um, and in Newfoundland, for approximately 100 years, we have to go into sort of the economic system of Newfoundland, uh, was a very exploitive system where the province was basically controlled by a small group of robber barons who ran the fishing industry. Now in the fishing industry, which basically everyone worked in, these few people in charge of the companies decided the price they would pay fishermen for their fish. They also decided the price fishermen needed to pay them for their equipment and their supplies for the year. And this was all done in company script. The goal was to keep fishermen in debt to the company basically year round for their entire life. Oh, my life to the company store kind of thing. Exactly. So that there's no real escape from this work. And these people in Newfoundland were making themselves absolutely, absolutely rich. Like these were people making um, money hand over fist on the backs of people in the outboard communities. Um, and when you get more into Newfoundland history, uh, it is an incredible fight dislodging these kind of systems um, in that area. Uh, but we don't have time to go into that, unfortunately. So for these families in Newfoundland, basically their only chance to earn actual cash in the year was the annual seal pup hunt. Now, nowadays seal pup hunting is, as I understand, basically outlawed. 1984, you cannot kill any white seal of any species, even if it's an adult. So prior to that, the seal pup hunt, and this was for harp seal pups, um, was the only way that your average family in Newfoundland could earn any money. And they could earn upwards of $50, which was an incredible sum for them at the time. Um, so at this time of year in the spring, migrating harp seals would birth on the sea ice. So this is the pads of sea ice, basically think like big lily pads made out of ice that have frozen and are sort of settled, but shifting and bumping into each other and bashing into each other on the ice with little flows and rivers between them and kicking up mountains of ice around them. And the harp seals come on this area to pup. And there's a very, very short amount of time between when the pups are born and when they can jump into the sea and swim off and you're not gonna catch them. So this seal hunt was a very time sensitive event in the time period between when the pups were born and when they could go to sea on their own. The goal was to kill as many pups as you could because the white coats were invaluable. Also, they were killed for seal oil, mm -hmm. which was a valuable commodity at the time. Um, so that was basically for a hundred years, 
Um, it was a huge tradition in the airport communities for men to compete for births on these sealing ships. Um, men as young as, well, children really, um, even as young as 13 and 14, going out on these sealing ships as soon as they could, um, almost as a rite of passage. Uh, it was incredibly dangerous. Um, none of your equipment is provided for you. You're out on this shifting, moving, treacherous sea ice um, in heavy leather and wool clothing. You probably don't know how to swim. If you go into that water, if you don't freeze, you know, freezing to death would be lucky if somebody hauls you out, you're probably going to sink. Um, the boats, in fact, were also terrible. Um, this goes back to the robber barons in charge of this. Uh, they put the least amount of money possible into uh, supplying these ships. So they were the oldest ships. They were in the worst condition. Um, and they were bought as cheaply as possibly, maintained as cheaply as possibly, uh, so that the profit margin of the seal hunt was maximized. And then that way, if your ship sank, it didn't really matter because it was a cheap ship. There was, there was definitely no thought um, given to the, uh, to the lives on the hunt. Um, in fact, if you look in, um, the only other place I found this is True Canadian Disasters, basically says the ships were leaky old tubs. If a ship returned to port with a hole full of pelts, it meant a huge return on a small investment. If she went to the bottom, it was of little consequence. As for the drowned men, they knew the risks when they signed on. So there was no thought given uh, to the crew of these vessels. Um, there were no cooks aboard the vessels, no kitchen facilities. The entire hold was stripped uh, for transport of the seal pelts eventually. Uh, the men were given tea and hardtack, uh, which was the diet the entire time, except for officers. Officers got a cook, of fucking course. Um, and uh, no medics were permitted on the ships. Uh, no heat. The bunks were used on the way out for sailors, but on the way back, the bunks were used for storage of the seal pelts. So the sailors were expected to sleep on top of the raw seal pelts. Um, and... Uh, they basically worked 24 seven. There was also a deduction, a large deduction from their pay for the use of the sealing equipment. So you work for them and then they take money from you to use the equipment that they gave you to get the stuff that they want anyways. Yep. Were you allowed to like eat the meat from these seals? You were allowed to eat the meat from the seals. Um, unfortunately, because of the setup on the boat, you generally didn't have access to something to cook it with. Right. Um, sometimes they could use uh, small stoves they called bogies, but when the hunt really got going, there wasn't any space, so they would eat the seal meat raw. Right. Yeah. At least they're getting some fat and protein. Pretty, well, not fat, because that needs to be rendered for oil. True, true. Yeah. Uh, so, the main captain we're going to be talking about, and the man responsible for this, is a man called Senior Captain Abraham Keane, and in my notes it says, asshole <laughs> okay because he really is an asshole um senior captain abraham Keene was as it says a senior captain in the fishing industry um and in the seal hunt he uh was known as one of the strictest people around devout methodist didn't stop him from stealing seal pelts which we'll get into later but you know a methodist when he was on land uh teetotaler 
and absolutely believed that decent food and comfortable quarters made men soft and lazy. Except him. He, he got nice quarters. But he was the senior captain in charge of the Newfoundland sealing fleet that year sailing out of St. John's. Also, people did compete for berths on his boat because as much as he was an asshole, he got results and he brought back a lot of pelts. So you got paid better. You got paid better. Uh, on the other side of senior Captain Abraham Keane, we have William Corker, who was the leader of the Fishermen's Protective Union. Uh, the Fishermen's Protective Union was an early attempt at unionizing and getting decent conditions on these boats for the sealers and for the fishermen that wasn't exploitive. At the time of the sailing for the 1914 disaster, they had just recently got the sealing bill passed, which required all boats going out sealing to provide decent food, cooking facilities, and a trained cook on the boat. Uh, the only boat that followed that law was the boat with the Fisherman's Protective Union Observer on it. Of course. Of course. Um, and that is the Nascope, a boat which we might run into later. Not literally. So the boat we are talking about, the Newfoundland, just to make things confusing because they're also sailing out of Newfoundland, um, was a 40-year-old wooden-hulled boat captained by 29-year-old Captain Westbury Keene, uh, Abe Keene's kid. Mm -hmm. Now, this kid did not even have his master's certificate to be the captain on a boat. So to obey maritime law, they had the navigator as Captain Charles Green aboard who did have his certificate, but Captain Charles Green was told in no uncertain terms uh, before the start of the voyage to keep his mouth shut and not interfere with uh, Westbury Keene running the boat. Uh, most of that stuff is covered. The other important thing to know about the Newfoundland is there was no thermometer on the boat. Uh, that's important. That's important. And there was no wireless system on the boat. It existed, and most of the other uh, boats in the sealing fleet had a wireless system to communicate. Basically a radio. A radio, yeah. The Newfoundland did not have a radio on board. Uh, there was no wireless, no method of communicating with the other boats in the fleet, aside from using signal flags or um, percussive noise. Um, there are... There's probably not enough time uh, to list all the crew member. It's important to know that most of the crew members boarded in family groups um, because you would often stick with your family when you were going to sea. So there are groups of brothers, groups of cousins, uncles and nephews um, getting on this boat together. One of the stories you run across is Reuben Crew. Uh, Reuben Crew had survived the Greenland sealing disaster a few years ago where 23 people were lost on the ice, never recovered, and a further 25 died. Um, he had sworn after that never to go to sea again, uh, but that year his 16-year-old son Albert Jones, or Albert John, was determined to go sealing and uh, Reuben wouldn't let him go alone, so Reuben and Albert boarded the boat together. Wow. Like you can see the desperation of that time. Mm-hmm. Um, the second, uh, it's the first mate on the boat called the second hand. So the person who is functionally in charge on the ice uh, is George Tuff, who was 32. Um, he was fairly experienced, but he was also absolutely terrified of the Keene family 
as everybody was in that area. Uh, it should also be mentioned, I think I forgot to mention, Keen was also a member of, uh, he was a minister. He was oh, high so he was a religious yeah, leader as well. He was a, no, no, not that type of minister. He was a cabinet minister oh. in the government. Oh, so he's a man of power. He had a lot of power, a lot of influence, and he could make all the laws that he would was expected to obey. Of course, why not? Uh-huh. So, the sealing season with a hundred and, and roughly a hundred and 70 sealers on board. 166 is the count they give. Uh, two stowaways who were young, like 14-year-old boys who weren't able to get a berth but decided to sneak onto the boat anyways. Um, they got caught and eventually sent shoveling coal. Little did they know how lucky that was. Um, but it was a bad start to the year. So bad ice kept the Newfoundland from sailing out of St. John's Harbor until Friday the 13th of March, which was very late in the season. Um, already sailors were not liking this. Stowaways are bad luck. Sailing on a Friday is bad luck. Sailing on Friday the 13th is even worse luck. Uh, but you do what you have to do to get your family fed and you're already on the boat. So by the time they finally got out of St. John's Harbor, they're barely out when they end up icebound. The Newfoundland is a wooden hull. Uh, now all the other boats or most of the other boats in the fleet were steel hulls. Uh, another boat that's gonna be very important to this story, Captain Abe Keen, the assholes boat, uh, the Stefano was a metal hull ship that was just crushing it through the ice and getting a ton of seals because he could go wherever he wanted. Meanwhile, the Newfoundland is stuck in the middle of the ice, unable to move because it's a wooden ship. So it can't move without tearing itself apart watching all the other boats harvest seals and losing money every day. So the frustration is building on the boat. Um, now, how it worked when uh, you were gonna go sealing is you come up close to a group of seals, the men are sent over the side and they have to climb through this wilderness of ice um, to get to the seals. It's not flat ice, it's spiky, it's wobbly, pans are tilting into the water. They're crashing into each other. It's intense. So once they get the seals, the seals are slaughtered and skinned on the ice. The pelts are stacked in a pile with the ship's banner on top of them uh, to identify who they belong to. And then the sealers move on to a new group of seals, the boat following after them to pick up the pelts and eventually the sealers when uh, they're done. It was common for sealers to be left on the ice overnight to work in decent weather um, with seal oil fires and, and seal fat fires to keep them warm, uh, basically while they worked. And as we mentioned before, Captain Abe was notorious for uh, coming along and stealing other uh, boats' pelts, which is one of the reasons why he always got such a good return is because he didn't really care who harvested the pelts as long as they ended up in his hold. Of course. Mm-hmm. So while this is happening, while the Newfoundland is stuck in ice, one of the worst storms in memory is building up and heading towards Newfoundland, one of the worst spring storms recorded. So by March 31st, so they've already been on, on out more than two weeks and hardly harvested anything. Um, Captain West Keen is about at his limit. He orders all of his men off the boat to cross the ice to his father's boat, the Stefano, 
and take orders from his father. Um, George Tuff volunteered to lead them uh, because he was an officer. He was not required to go onto the ice, but he did volunteer to lead them. So uh, it was a distance of six miles, 9.6 kilometers to cross the ice from the Newfoundland to the Stefano. 166 men left the boat divided in four groups under the command of uh, master watches. Master watches were common sealers who only had authority on the ice, not on the boat. Mm. Um, supposedly, as uh, Tuff was walking out of the room, Captain Keene told him he should spend the night on the Stefano, but Tuff says he never heard him say that. But other people overheard this happening, so it was sort of a missed communication there. Uh, the weather was clear when the men went onto the ice, but they were already nervous because a lot of them were observing weather phenomena that they recognized um, as bad weather coming in. It was really, really warm, warm enough that a lot of men left their gear on the boat. They left their coats and their warmest gear on the boat so they would not have to carry it across the ice. Um, and they were already observing things like sun dogs. Um, in the sky indicating incoming weather. And I mean, these are fishermen. These are people who make their living on the sea. They know intimately, intimately the signs of bad weather. However, Captain Keene was relying on his barometer, which was very old and hadn't been checked or tested in years, which said the weather was fair and likely to remain so. By about 11 a.m., uh, the signs of the bad weather were increasing and the men asked to turn back. Uh, there was a fight. There were accusations of cowardice thrown around and 34 of the men who were on the ice turned back to the Newfoundland. So now we have 132 men left on the ice. Uh, the men left on the ice arrived at, Stefa at the Stefano at about 1120 in the morning, right as the first snow started to hit. Uh, Captain Keene, Captain Abraham Keene was so busy with sealing, he wouldn't even stop the boat for the men to get on. So they had to run alongside and grab a rope and haul themselves up as the boat was moving. Uh, he was really not interested in having these men on or around his boat or dealing with him. Uh, he put out some tea and hardtack, not enough for everybody to share, but you know, enough that some people got a cup of tea and hardtack after being on the ice for about five hours and uh, said he would put them off near some seals that they could harvest and then the Newfoundland would come pick them back up. He said the weather was fine and he'd be dropping them off closer to the Newfoundland anyways. This is incredibly disputed um, because this is what Captain Keene said at the inquest, but most of the people involved in the disaster, his own crew, the surviving Newfoundland crew, crew said he took them further away from the Newfoundland um, when he was dropping them off for the seals and that he wasn't really aware of where they were and where they were in relation to the Newfoundland. And he was just dropping them off near some seals to get rid of them and said, oh yeah, sure, it's closer. But he didn't really know what he was talking about. Hmm. So Tuff disagreed, but he was too afraid of the Keene family. Like nobody speaks back to Abraham Keene. So he said, okay, drop us. By 11.50, less than half an hour after they had reached the Stefano, the Newfoundland men were already back on the ice. Keen didn't slow the boat down to let them out either and almost bowled them over on the ice when they got dropped off. Jesus. 
when the men found out that they were expected to harvest seals and then walk back to the Newfoundland that night in the worsening weather, um, there was another fight, almost a mutiny. One man, John Howlett, uh, tried to actually punch secondhand tough, uh, but was held back by the other men because at this point they were not ready for a mutiny. Right. Um, and maritime laws around mutiny held on the seal hunt. Trying to lead the, um, the sealers across, Tuff was confused by the flags uh, that were out on the ice. There were a lot of flags from a lot of boats out on the ice and he wasn't sure which one he was meant to be navigating by. They eventually did find some seals, but the weather was continuing to worsen. The men were continuing to protest. So at that point in the late afternoon, uh, Tuff finally turned them around to head back towards the Newfoundland. There were 132 men in a single file line with Master Watch Tom Dawson in the lead and Tuff as the tail to make sure that nobody fell behind. Meanwhile, the 34 who left earlier were just arriving back at the Newfoundland. Captain Keene was furious with them uh, because he believed that his crew, the rest of his crew was safely asleep already on the Stefano, ready to go out and kill seals in the morning. And the Newfoundland didn't have a wireless, so he had no way to check this. He just assumed that they were safe. All around the ice and the worsening weather, all the sealing ships in the fleet were pulling in their men except for the Newfoundland. Another member of the Keene family, uh, Captain Abraham's uh, other son, Captain West's brother, Joe, uh, who was the captain of the Florizel sealing ship, saw the Newfoundland men on the ice and was really concerned for their safety. Now, the Florizel did have a wireless radio. So he wired his father aboard the Stefano and said like, hey, I'm worried about the sailors from the Newfoundland, what's going on? Uh, Captain Abe told him that he was sure the Newfoundland men were already back on their own ship and not to worry about it. But he saw them out on the ice. I think there was a time delay in between when they saw them and when the radio message got through. It may not have been radio. This could have been even like Morse code even still. Oh, it definitely was. I think Morse code, like it wasn't a spoken. I don't think it was a spoken radio message, but I'm not sure. I'd have to check the radio. Um, the crew of the Stefano was also very, very worried about the crew of the Newfoundland being put down. Uh, but as a crew, they were too afraid to confront the captain about it. But there was a lot of grumbling and concern on the boat. After hours of walking, uh, Tuff split the men on the ice into two groups, thinking that two groups walking in two lines next to each other would be easier to traverse the ice. Um, but it made for a lot of confusion because nobody knew who was supposed to go with which group. The storm was continually worsening. It made them lose their path because they weren't able to see the Newfoundland. They had marked the path out with soot uh, but that was being quickly blown away, eroded away, and covered away with new snow. Uh, so their markers were not holding in the snow. Um, plus, the ice was some of the worst that the experienced uh, sealers had ever seen to walk on. And experienced sailor, see, eh, seal hunters and sailors that year said the ice was the worst to travel they'd seen in terms of just rough terrain. Uh, they were also breaking through new snow, and for whatever reason, uh, George Tuff, as the officer in charge, did not rotate the people who were breaking the snow for the rest of the line. 
and you can already see sort of the decision-making process really starting to break down in an accelerated fashion here. Um, one of the first to show signs of hypothermia and damage was William Pear. Uh, when he couldn't keep up or walk unassisted, Tuff called a stop uh, and sent five or six men ahead to find the Newfoundland. Meanwhile, on the Newfoundland, the bosun, uh, John Tizard, was concerned about the men because the custom in a snowstorm is in a snowstorm, when you're sealing, you always blow the ship's whistle at intervals to signal to any men who might happen to be lost on the ice so that even though they can't see you, they can follow the sound to get back to the boat. Right. When he, because he was an officer, he was able to bring this up to the captain. Uh, the captain said, no, there's no need for us to blow our whistle. All our men are safe on board the Stefano, but if you're really worried, you can give it a blow or two. So because uh, two blows had been authorized, the captain, by the captain, um, the bosun blew the whistle twice at 15 minute intervals. Um, on the ice, the men heard the whistle, but didn't but the two blows did not give them enough information to orient them to the ship. So they heard the two whistles and then silence. Um, at this point, the first member of the crew died. A teenager named Art Moulin fell in the water. He was pulled out, um, but as they kept walking, no one noticed that he went missing and he was never seen again. Stumbling exposure pretty fast there. And at this point, uh, darkness is falling and they, Tuff admitted that they were lost. Uh, they were shouting for help from the ship, but due to the wind and the storm, they went completely unheard. And at this point, they're only about half a mile from the Newfoundland. Oh God, half a mile, that's... That's eight, 800 meters. That's insane. Um, and at this distance, they could not be seen or heard due to the storm. So for the night, the men were put into three groups as there were too many for them to be uh, stable on one pan. Uh, the watchmaster in charge of the first group, Art Mooland, had the men build uh, an, a windbreaker out of ice, a three-sided windbreaker, so a large wall on two sides um, as a windbreaker out of ice. Some of the other groups tried to build smaller shelters, but they weren't as coordinated as Art Mooland's group. Um, so his group fared a little bit better with the windbreak because they were able to construct some shelter. Uh, they were unable to make fires with what was on them. Many of them uh, were missing their winter clothes also because the day had been warm. They were quite sweaty mm -hmm. um, from the exertion and starting to freeze. At this point, the snow turned to rain. Um, the clothing that they were wearing was water resistant, not waterproof. Uh, so they were quickly soaked to the skin. Then the temperature dropped to about minus 30, turning it to sleet. Um, Good Lord. In the one group uh, overnight, there was one sailor who's considered one of the big heroes of this event named Jesse Collins. And he spent most of the night forcing the other men in his group to get up and move around. Um, he would kick them and shove them and push them until they stood up. 
Uh, he made them dance. He made them march in lines. He made them sing. He made them pretend that they were jigging for cod. Um, and he kept them moving all night. And there was one quote I, I found about him that I just had to read because it's incredible. Um, where is it? I can't find the, ex here it is. When the men had their eyes frozen shut because of ice on their lashes, Collins chewed the ice off, freezing his own lips in the process. So this is one of the people, and, and he does survive, um, but this is one of the people who really comes out as one of the heroes of the event and taking that leadership role to get other people through it. So he ate, or he... He, ate, he ate the snow off their eyes so that they could see. What a guy. Yeah, right? What a guy. <laughs> wonder if he has any descendants. <laughs> the ladies in the podcast are currently swooning. <laughs> so swooning. <laughs> I'm, I'm a little swoony myself. <laughs> um, so as the storm intensified, um, men were literally freezing in their place, dropping in their tracks. Um, and it's one of those really grotesque situations where you're just sort of frozen in the last position you took in life, kind of like Pompeii. Um, there are hundreds of stories about it. And I think like every family in the community has a story about it. Um, the one that struck me was Edward Tippett was on the ice with his two sons, Abe and Norman. Um, he died sitting up with the arms around the corpses of his two sons. And this is what you have to remember about this tragedy. Like it decimated families. It wiped out families because most of these men were traveling in family groups. That really gets the heartstrings. Yeah. Ouch. So the next morning, and this is the morning of April 1st, after the first night on the ice. Spoiler, there's another. Um... Captain W. Keene of Newfoundland tried to sail to the Stefano to check on his men, but the steering chain on the boat broke because it was a crappy boat. Um, so he was not able to travel to the Stefano. It's also still storming. So the men are still trapped on the ice after the first night, still in a worsening storm condition. They have not slept all night. They have not eaten since noon the previous day. They have put out an incredible amount of energy trying to keep warm um, because the only way to stay alive is to continually move. Uh, they have no food, very little shelter from the wind, um, and they literally had to keep walking. You had to keep walking. You had to keep moving. Um, otherwise, if you sat down, you were going to freeze and die with no food, no sleep, no rest. Um, Reuben Crew, who was the, uh, the man who swore never to go back on the ice, and his son died together the, uh, after the first night. Many of the sailors took clothes from the dead, um, but some of them were, some of the other sailors were uncomfortable disturbing the bodies. Uh, so not everyone was willing to use that resource at that point. Halfway through the first day, or you know, halfway through April 1st, they did see through the storm uh, the sealing ship Bellaventure, but the ship was not able to see them uh, and they weren't able to signal it. They didn't have the materials to signal it and it turned away. Uh, in the evening of that day, 
Tuff also thought he saw smoke from the Newfoundland. Uh, but when he went in that direction, the ship had moved just enough that he wasn't able to locate it and came back to the group. Uh, by the second night, uh, some of the men were already actively hallucinating. Um, one of the survivors, John Howlett, covered himself in a pile of corpses to protect himself from the wind uh, and survived by hiding under a pile of corpses. By the morning of April 2nd, the storm started to clear. So this is after their second night on the ice. As the storm started to clear, the men were able to see the Newfoundland, but at this point they were too physically um, exhausted and destroyed to shout. So they just had to walk towards the boat um, as best they can after continuously walking for two days with no food in a snowstorm. Um, on the other side, they could also see the Bellaventure so Jesse Collins, um, who was getting people to walk, he sent two people from his group uh, towards the Bellaventure as well to get their attention. It was actually Captain Keene on the Newfoundland who spotted the first survivors uh, heading towards the ship and sent a crew out to retrieve them. And as soon as they reached the ship, the distress signal was hoisted to alert the rest of the fleet. Uh, by the time the rest of the fleet had been alerted, and another boat with a wireless was able to uh, reach the Bellaventure. The other pair had already reached the Bellaventure and the, that boat was also heading for the survivors. The Bellaventure was actually the closest boat at that time. So they affected most of the rescue of people. Um, at this point, Captain Keene was so distraught that he realized his men had been left on the ice that he ceded command of the boat to Charles Green and uh, remained in his cabin for the rest of the trip. Of the 134 men who were left on the ice for two nights, 55 survived, uh, the rest died. All but eight of the bodies were recovered. Uh, there were eight who were lost at sea, never to be recovered. Uh, when the news of the disaster reached the owners of the sailing, uh, the sealing fleet. Their response was that it should be left up to the captains of the fleet to decide whether to continue with the seal hunt and no one should interfere with that. Many of the boats returned early, but Captain Abraham Keene's boat stayed out an additional um, six days returning on April 8th. Of course. Mm -hmm. Um, he was nearly lynched when he came off the boat. However, his reputation in the community as such was, uh, nobody was willing to start something with him. Um, at the inquest, uh, Captain Westbury Keene was cleared of guilt, although he himself never really let go of the guilt for the rest of his life. And he felt it very strongly. And because of that, he was viewed very sympathetically by the fishermen and the relatives of the sealers. Uh, the real villain in everybody's eyes was Captain Abraham Keene. He was also cleared uh, by the inquest. He said he had done more than his duty um, and that was just accepted. Uh, he was given command of the Florizel the next year 
1934, he was given the Order of the British Empire for being the most successful seal pelt harvester of all time. Of course. Of course. Capitalism. Yep. The only sort of advantage that was drawn out of this situation is the sheer scope of the disaster led to a lot of laws and regulations and improvement of the conditions of men on the seal boats um, and a lot more support for things like the, um, the uh, fishermen's union. And that is sort of the enduring legacy of the Newfoundland disaster is a lot of those protections that came in for people working on boats. So let's dive into this real quick. Like some of the only equipment that they had at the time to keep warm in conditions like that and protected from the elements in clothing wise. This is, this is pre Gore-Tex. Mm -hmm. This is pre like rubberized nylons and silicone and pregnant nylons. We're talking oil skin, tin cloth, and what's called boiled wool. Um, what boiled wool is like you would get a, let's say if you were getting a boiled wool booty for your, uh, for your boot, you, let's say you're a size 10, you're going to get a size 15 booty made of thick wool and they're going to boil that and it's going to shrink in the boiling process and felt up into a really thick, fairly watertight wool kind of equipment. And I have pictures somewhere actually of the, the sailors in their kit. And it's like you're talking about really rough, heavy equipment that is uncomfortable to walk in, uncomfortable to wear. But that's what you got to work in. That's that's your only choice to stay alive out there. And some of these guys, as you said, selected the choice, decided to leave a lot of that behind because it was so warm out. But add the fact that if you did get pulled in, like that stuff weighs a ton. You're not swimming back out easily. Yeah. So that's the men in their kit. Wow. Yeah. You're looking at just woolens and oil skins right there. And then when they come back, this is when they come back, he's just head to toe coated in seal blood and you don't have a change of clothes. So that's just what you wear until it walks on its own. Yeah. And then there's actually more, uh, more pictures in the book, unfortunately, of uh, the rescue. And this is the Bella Venture where they had the corpses um, had to be piled on the deck. There was not room in the hold. And then this was the St. John's waterfront with the red ensign, the flag of England at half mast. Um, and I don't know if you can see, but the whole uh, shorefront is lined with just about every human being in the town waiting for the arrival of the Bellaventure with the bodies in the first round of survivors. It's insane. So what kind of, <laughs> well, there's a lot of teachables out of this. Um, first and foremost, freaking communication. Yes. We um, have, we have a technology now that uh, didn't exist back then. We have two-way radio. We have oceanic radio communication devices. We have GPS. We have EPIRBs. We have spot locators. We have everything on the planet that they didn't have back then. We're at best, I'm assuming they had radio frequency Morse code at best. Yeah, pretty much whatever radio technology was available for cheap in 1914 and uh, percussive blasts, the ship's whistle and mainly still flag signals. Yeah. Um, 
even today, like sealing still continues near and around Newfoundland. And you talk to the guys that are out there and it's still hard work. It's still dangerous work. You're still dealing with ice flows that can give way, crud ice that you can't see very well, but they're wearing some of the best equipment there is. They, almost every person out there has EPIRBs or other locating devices on them. They even have uh, plates on some of them that are actually made to be locators for infrared. So even if your body goes out, that thing still puts out a small heat location so they can find you under the ice. And also the men going out today have access to adequate nutrition and adequate rest. And equipment and like you're not financially obligated to survive this. And you, you're not you can actually 14. Yeah, you can actually defend your rights. There's unions, there's protection for you. So for me, the very top of the list, leadership is a huge thing on this. If they had adequate leadership, that was actually good leadership. That wasn't about selfish desires and selfish plans and objectives, like Tuft tried. Mm -hmm. And even like Keen, the, the, the Wesley Keen or West Keen. Westbury. Yeah. Westbury Keen. I just keep thinking Wesley because Wesley crush on his Damn it, Wesley. Exactly. Um, even he like showed that he cared, but he was trying to do his dad's job. And the, at the end of the day, it's his dad's company. It's his dad's business. Mm -hmm. You got to do what your dad tells you because dad's boss. And, and I think like the yeah. big takeaway for me on this one is never assume in situations like this. Don't assume the weather is going to hold. Don't assume people are in the location you expect them to be in. Don't assume that people are going to react the way you expect they're going to react because in this case, all of these assumptions built on each other to create a deadly situation. If any of those assumptions had broken down, it's quite possible this disaster wouldn't have happened or we would have had a much smaller death toll. And I also wanna bring up I mean, I was thinking about it while you were talking, but I feel like a lot of people listening might not understand the dangers of wet and cold and how sometimes minus 20 is way safer than minus one or uh, hovering around zero and raining. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Like when you, when you mix wet and cold, it, gets, it can get very dangerous very, very fast. Yeah, there's a meme floating around Facebook right now or a Tumblr story about uh, a group of wildlife biologists who had to, to basically pull rank and haul their colleague off into uh, a warm van after he fell into a river wearing nothing but cotton in the cold. And he didn't believe that people die of hypothermia anymore because it's not the 1800s. I think that's the one thing that remains the same is negligence. Is still yeah. Gung-ho bosses try to meet their quotas and try to surpass those quotas so they end up putting their mm -hmm. own at risk since they're not the ones that are actually out there doing that so. yeah there's there's levels of like the leadership on the ice seem to be doing their best but it's the leadership around them and above them that they can't control mm -hmm. and there's no bureaucracy yeah there's there's a lot of like oh that, that costs too much just make them go back. I don't want them on the ship. They're slowing us down. He's nice mm -hmm. and cozy, smoking his pipe on the ship. He's mm -hmm. happy. He's got all the food he needs. I have a picture of like the Highliner captain. <laughs> he kind of looks like that. Where's my picture of him? 
I don't know if I want to see a picture of this guy because I'm just angry at him. Well, he looks like Like, I have so much. Yeah, Yeah. Captain Highliner. (laughs) Yeah, he looks like Captain Highliner. Oh, sorry, his name's Abram. I've been calling him Abraham, but really, I don't care because he's an asshole. Yeah, you can misname him all you want. Just don't confuse uh, innocent people for him. (laughs) There's. And then this is this is Jesse Collins who was keeping everybody alive. The guy with the fabulous mustache. Interesting. So. Out of this, like this is a ten out of the ten out of ten story. As was Nikki's earlier. These are phenomenal. Like I'm glad that our patrons chose these ones to tell. These were phenomenal. Um, we're definitely going to have to make a part two. There is no way we could fit all of this on one episode. So we're actually be doing a part two when Rye and I tell our stories. Rye will be telling the Donner Party, and I will be telling the Franklin Expedition. There will be cannibalism. Donner Party of one. <laughs> there will be cannibalism. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Stay warm with these stories. Such a cold, cold, bitter, cold story. With that all out of the way, amazing story. I want to thank Emily Carell again for coming to us and sharing this story. I also want to thank Nikki Satira for the previous episode and Rye Moffat or Rye the Adventure Guy for our next episode. Stay tuned for the Donner Party.